In 2015, the left told us that men were women, that whites were black, that the Constitution included a right to gay marriage, and that Islam had absolutely nothing to do with terrorism. Prepare for 2016, when we'll learn that good is evil, lies are truth, and freedom is slavery. And those are just Hillary Clinton's campaign slogans. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. All right, I'm back. You've been living in a gray, clavenless haze of uncertainty, but now I've broken through. We can begin the year in earnest. We don't have to hold back anymore. But before we do, before we do, I really was just thinking about the sheer quantity of untruths that poured out of the left last year. And so I took a little time last night and I put together this. Now, this is off the top of my head, so I'm sure I missed some big ones, but this is just stuff I was putting together of things that I heard in 2015 that were completely <laughs> untrue from the left. And I, with the help of our, our sound man, Mathis, I strung these together. We call him Mathis A, because when you say, could you take this piece of sound. He says, eh? Eh? He doesn't, he doesn't hear very well, Matt. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> he strung together. This is my, left, my <laughs> leftist lie mix of 2015. So hit it, and we'll play the, play the laws. Yes, for all intents and purposes, I am a woman. The Supreme Court found gay and lesbian Americans have a constitutional right to marry. Hello, I'm Cecile Richards, president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. I want to be really clear. The allegation that Planned Parenthood profits in any way from tissue donation is not true. And I'm looking, I'm watching the officer, he's pursuing my friend now that he fired another shot. It struck my friend in the back. Then my friend stopped running. His hands immediately went in the air and he turned around towards the officer face to face. He started to tell the officer that he was unarmed and that you should stop shooting me. Before he can get his second sentence out, the officer fired several more shots into his head and chest area. Now, there are contributing factors that are not under anybody's control and may, may seem odd, but it is factually true. One of them is actually the weather. There is a dramatic increase in gun violence when it is warmer, and we are having this climate change effect that is driving that. Make no mistake, the Paris Agreement establishes the enduring framework the world needs to solve the climate crisis. It creates the mechanism, the architecture, for us to continually tackle this problem in an effective way. But ISIS is gaining strength, aren't they? Well, no, I don't think they're gaining strength. What is true is, is that from the start, our goal has been first to contain, and we have contained them. They have not gained ground in Iraq, and in Syria, it, they'll come in, they'll leave, uh, but you don't see this systematic march by ISIL uh, across the terrain. This week, the United States and our international partners finally achieved something that decades of animosity has not, a deal that will prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. This deal will make America and the world safer and more secure. Islam is not our adversary. Muslims are peaceful and tolerant people and have nothing whatsoever to do with terrorism. The next day, within 24 hours, you had a conversation with the Egyptian prime minister. You told him this. We know the attack in Libya had nothing to do with the film. It was a planned attack, not a protest. 
Let me read that one more time. We know, not we think, not it might be, we know the attack in Libya had nothing to do with the film. It was a planned attack, not a protest. State Department experts knew the truth. You knew the truth, but that's not what the American people got. And again, the American people want to know why. Why didn't you tell the American people exactly what you told the Egyptian prime minister? Well, I think if you look at the statement that I made, I clearly said that it was an attack, and I also said that there were some who tried to justify Secretary it Clinton, on, the basis, on the basis of the video, Congressman. And I but, think but, it's- but, but, but real quick, calling it an attack is like saying the sky's blue. Of course it was an attack. Well, you don't, I mean, we want to know the truth. This, the statement you sent out was a statement on Benghazi, and you say vicious behavior as a response to inflammatory material on the internet. If that's not pointing as the motive of being a video, I don't know what is. Is that everybody? That is an awful lot of untruth pouring out of people's faces. I mean, that, it, that's like a medical condition almost. You know, like, you know, like leprosy, people's like noses fall off. This is like, like you know, you've got, son, you've got some untruth pouring out of your face. Now. Well, you know, I've got leftism. Have some compassion for crying out loud. You know, it's, un, it's incurable. I, it really is amazing. And now it's 2016, and it's an election year, and Obama has promised, what did he say? He's going to squeeze every ounce of change he can out of his last year because, because, because he loves America so much he won't rest until it's completely different. You know? <laughs> and he hasn't, there just hasn't been enough, there hasn't been enough, you know, failure, basically. We have to have more failure. So here's, and we've got the election year, so you get ready for stuff. Uh, play that uh, George Stephanopoulos piece. Play, play this. Get ready for this kind of stuff. As you know, the Clinton campaign says you haven't produced a shred of evidence that there was any official action as secretary that, that supported the well, interests of donors. We've done investigative work here at ABC News, found no proof of any kind of direct action. And an independent government ethics expert, Bill Allison of the Sunline Foundation, wrote this. He said, there's no smoking gun, no evidence that she changed a policy based on donations to the foundation. No smoking gun. Is there a smoking gun? That's, that's the standard we're going to be operating in. If you don't come in and find Hillary Clinton standing over a body with a gun with a little line of smoke waggling up out of it, you know, she is not guilty. Never mind that she took, you know, her foundation took money from companies and then they got favors when she was a senator in New York. Never mind that she dealt with companies she shouldn't have, uh, wasn't allowed to deal with as Secretary of State and they got favors. Forget about it. If she's not holding a gun with smoke coming out of it, there's no smoking gun. And that may just have a little something to do with the fact that George Stephanopoulos is a Clinton operative who is now the chief anchor of ABC News. So when he says ABC News has done an investigation, you know that it matters. So this is, get, get ready, folks. This is what the, this year is going to be like. Let me tell you what my holiday was like so you know where I'm coming from, all right? It, if you were listening before we, the break, you know how much I love Christmas. You know that it, what it means to me. I used to joke with my wife and tell her that only a converted Jew can really love Christmas the way, the way it should be loved because, because the reason is you have no memories. You have no Christmas in your childhood when like Uncle Ted came over and got drunk and like tried to, you know, feel up your mother or something like this. And now it's like, you know, I just every time I see Santa Claus, I remember Uncle Ted. It's like a trauma. You know, you don't have no Christmas PTSD. It just got, it's like a clean slate. It's like, you know, welcome to the birth of Christ. Give me my gifts. I'm out of here. That's it. <laughs> it's great. And I just love the holiday. I just love it with, un with unreservedly. 
So how did I spend my Christmas? I spent Christmas Day killing my dog. This is how I spent Christmas. Yes, my I know everybody everybody in the room knew and loved my dog Dash. He was a golden retriever, which is a great breed to begin with, but she was a special special dog and she was with me for 15 years. She was one of the best friends I ever had. Christmas Eve, my wife and son and I go up to Santa Barbara and we go to a church that we love and we see some friends that we love and we wake up in the morning and we're going to go for a hike and we get a call from the dog sitter because we're getting on a plane the next morning to go visit my daughter out of, out of state, right? So we're getting into the plane and we get a call from the dog sitter and the dog isn't feeling well and we knew the dog was on her last legs and we were just kind of hoping, you know, holding on until she started to obviously suffer. And so we spent Christmas Day going from vet to vet trying to find some vet who wasn't an idiot trying to convince us to operate on this 15-year-old dog and make her suffer even longer and, uh, and finally uh, put her down, which was just heartbreaking. I said to my son, you know, Gee, that wasn't a very Merry Christmas. And my son said, no, but it was a very Christmas Christmas because this dog truly was a special dog. About halfway through her life, we started to realize that we had gotten some incredible gift. She was just an immense, I mean, she was, we, we called her the mayor of Santa Barbara because I would walk down the street, street with her and people who didn't know her would just come up, like everyone would just come up and shake her hand and talk to her. And then I'd come back and there she is again. And then they would welcome her and wave at her and all that. She had a great, great dog life. She spent her life at the beach and in the woods with me. I'm a woodsman and a hiker and she just spent her entire time. She had a wonderful, wonderful life. But she really was, a, we had this joke in my house where we would say, you know, she, she not only was loving herself, but she loved the fact that we loved each other. So, you know, if she saw me, you know, kissing my wife or, you know, being nice to my kids, she would wag her tail and jump around. Just, she just loved that, you know, and she, she was just, we used to have this joke where we would say, you know, we would look at each other with this kind of mystic look and say, you know, dog is God spelled backwards. <laughs> and she loved, she loved Christmas. She was born the day after Christmas, what the British call Boxing Day. 15 years went by and on Christmas Day she died in exact 15 years of, uh, and she used to, I know she used to wake up on Christmas morning. How she knew it was Christmas morning, I don't know, but she used to just wake up like a kid, like on the, you know, like get up, get up, get up, you know, this kind of thing. Just an absolutely, absolutely special animal. And I was really glad that, that she was around, uh, you know, that I was around. I was glad we hadn't left, you know. And so we realized that, you know, it was very, very sad, but it was also, she was a gift. It was just a gift from God, this dog. And I just want to add this one quick story, which I give you without commentary whatsoever. We came back from the vets, and we're all, of course, very down, and we're talking about it. And then after a while, we got tired of, like, looking at each other's faces and just kind of, you know, you know talking all this glum stuff. So we all went out to do our own thing. And I have this little sunroom. It's a room that's uh, completely glassed in and screened in, and it lets out into the little garden that the dog would use to go to the bathroom and all this. And this was her little garden. And I have an an elliptical machine in there. So I got on the elliptical machine and I'm working out and I'm working out and I go for about 20 minutes and suddenly the door to the garden just slowly opens up. Slowly comes open, stays open for about a minute and then just as slowly and deliberately swings shut. I, 
it was the wind. I guess it was the wind, you know, but it was pretty, pretty amazing. So anyway, that was, the, that was my Christmas, and then we went off to be with my family, and, and it was the end. It was a fitting end to 2015. I, I had a year of immense highs and immense lows. Uh, lost a family member, uh, gained a family member, had births and deaths, sicknesses that, we, that were very, very frightening in my family that we got through all right, and so we were very grateful. Big uh, career successes and some things that were really frustrating. Just one of those years, and I have to tell you, just as a, a, a matter of pure testimony that as a guy of faith, these are the things that test your faith. And when I say that, I don't mean they test your faith by exciting your doubts, that they make you doubt yourself. I mean, they test your faith in the way jumping out of an airplane tests your parachute. You know, <laughs> suddenly you, know, you find out, like, does this stuff actually do anything for me? And it really, really does. In grief and in joy, I found that faith uh, lent a vitality and a context of meaning. And I'm not talking about any kind of sentimental like, oh, the good Lord knows what he's doing or, you know, everything will come out for the better. There's a reason. Everything happens for a reason. I'm not talking about any of those platitudes. I'm talking about a depth of meaning that all these events had because they took place in the context of faith. And that was very, very uplifting. So I spent the rest of the holiday from Christmas to New Year's with my family, and I did nothing. And I don't do nothing a lot. I mean, anyone who knows me will tell you that I work from sunup to sundown. I'm very hard work. I'm always doing something. Even when I'm not doing anything, I'm doing something. This time, I did nothing. I didn't watch TV. I didn't go to the movies. I would occasionally check the news just to make sure that the building I was in like wasn't under siege or something. You know? like I didn't want to look out the window and see ISIS out there, you know, and like you know, I, I just wanted, wanted to make sure that everything was fine. But I really I would go on social media maybe once a day and send up a couple of tweets and but really was doing nothing. I read books, stayed with the family, worked out, that was it. And it it got me away from this overdose of information that we live in. I mean, I think in the modern world, we are constantly being overdosed. And by the way, I'm not complaining. I love the modern world. I love technology. I love the information age. The internet is one of the great gifts. I love the internet. But, but things have an effect. I've always noticed when they do studies in America, they'll do a study and say video games can make children violent. We studied 100 children who play video games 10 hours a day. And they became violent. <laughs> they're playing video games 10 hours a day. They're violent because they have no parents. You know? I mean, that's, like, that's not a good study. But they always study things in overdose because we have so much that there are always people who are overdosing on things. And we are all overdosing on information and opinions and news. And on top of which, not to mention constant sexuality. I mean, constantly... Constant pictures of naked women, naked men, constant talk about sex. It just makes you keyed up. It just brings everything to an edge. And I think that as a result of this, there's always this crisis mentality among people who follow politics. You just get to the point. Look, there's always a crisis going on somewhere, a real crisis. I mean, if you look now at uh, Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia kills a bunch of people, one of them a popular cleric. Iran takes off. They're having this... They broken off diplomatic relations. Thank goodness, thank goodness that no idiot came along and made a deal with Iran that makes it likely they'll get a nuclear weapon. I mean, whoosh, thank, thank God that didn't happen. Yeah. So it's like, so when there's a civil war in the Middle East, at least we know we won't all die. But, but you know, there is always a crisis going on somewhere, and there's always a place. But, but there's also always someone everywhere telling you it's a crisis when it's not, and telling you you should despair. And the one thing that I hear all the time, and I hear it especially on the right, is that everything's done, we're finished, we're through. Uh, you know, I found this one piece 
in the uh, Telegraph, which is the Daily Telegraph, is the conservative British paper. I used to read it when I lived in England. Great paper. It's a really terrific paper. So here's a piece by Christopher Booker in the Telegraph. <laughs> it's, here's, it's called, Our spoiled, emasculated, despiritualized societies in the West are in terminal decline. I mean, that, that hits just every note. That's like, <laughs> it's like the full octave of conservative despair, right? Our spoiled, emasculated, despiritualized societies in the West are in terminal decline. He says, what we were seeing in 2015 more than ever before were the signs of one of history's great geopolitical shifts as the centuries-old hegemony of the West gives way to the new powerhouses of the outside world. In the face of every kind of new external challenge, the leaders of the EU and the USA have never looked weaker or more bemused as over how to deal with the flood of refugees and the terrorist threat unleashed from a Middle East reduced to chaos by our vainglorious interventions in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya. Never have our politicians and political institutions been held in less respect. All of which is true, by the way. Never have our political institutions been held in less respect, especially by the people who are running them. And I think that it is, it is a moment when, like in the 70s, like in the 1970s, the West is trying to commit suicide. You know, we're very powerful. Power, you know, we have survivor guilt. We don't know why we were blessed the way we were blessed. I think there are perfectly good reasons why we were blessed the way we were blessed. We had the best ideas. But there's no particular reason why we had the best ideas. Maybe we just had Mel, the idea guy, who came along at one point in history and gave us good ideas. Or Jesus, the idea guy, maybe a little bit more likely. But even so, we don't know why. We don't know why we got that gift. So th there's this guilt, and people like Barack Obama not only feed on that guilt, they make it in, they turn it into a philosophy. And they try to destroy what we have. He has said so. I'm going to fundamentally transform this society. He, he left out the part, I'm going to fundamentally transform it from the most successful, richest, most powerful, most peaceful, most free country on earth. He left out that part of the sentence, but that was implied in the thing. So now here's this guy, Christopher Booker, and a lot of people saying it's over. We're done. Clearly, the Islam is on this uh, you know, unstoppable rise, especially because nobody will say the word. No one will say the word Islam. Nobody will say this religion, no matter how many nice people there are in the religion, the religion itself may just be mistaken. It may be wrong, and it may be leading us down a garden path. Obviously, all of us, and I think this is true of the left, too, even though they won't come out and say it, all of us know this has been a drastically failed presidency. The All the good things that are true right now, the less hunger in the world, the more wealth in the world, the greater security in the world, the less violence in the world, because there is less violence in the world than in decades past. All of that is the result of 50 years of conservative governance. First Reagan, and then Clinton, who was forced into a conservative position and was enough of a thinker and a, uh, and a politician, basically, to follow the trends of the times and to keep that conservative line going. What, we're, what we have now, the great things we have now, are the result of conservative governance, and we all know Obama has turned the ship in the wrong direction. But to me, I just can't help saying this, in, in most cases, 99% of cases, despair is a form of cowardice. Despair is a form of cowardice. Look, if the doctor, if six doctors come to you and tell you you have three months to live, okay, you know, that's the time to, to deal with acceptance. That's the time to come to terms, you know, get your affairs in order, figure out what God wants from you, what the life is supposed to be about. I get it. But in most cases, despair is a way of fighting off the feeling, the intense feeling of suspense and the fear that you won't get what you want. So it's like the kid who says, I don't care if I win this game. 
I don't care if I win this game. You know, then you don't have to worry. You don't have to feel the suspense. Will I win it? Will I not? And then you think, you think the theory is that if you lose it, you won't feel as bad because you were expecting it anyway. That, to me, is cowardice. And you can hear it in the way despairing people talk because they talk with this great belligerence. You know, ah, you're kidding yourself. You're a clown. It's over. Admit it. Confess. It's over. You know, that's, that's faint-heartedness, you know, masking itself with this belligerence. And I think that, you know, I think that when you step away from that, when you step away from that feeling, you have to reassess where you are. And that's what I was kind of doing this week. I was reassessing where we are in terms of this, this election. Because some of you may have heard that 2016 is an election year. You know, we've got all this stuff going on, all these people telling us what's going to happen. And none of them knows. Not one of them knows. It's just like the football games. Nobody knows who's going to win. But every week, the same guys keep coming back, whether they were wrong 100% of the time or not. They keep coming back and telling us. Now everybody's telling us what's going on. So I took a look at it. And I thought, you know, all right, this is the moment. George Washington said, every now and again in America, the power returns to the people. That's the election year. Power returns to the people. We have a fight. We're going to have a fight this year about what kind of country this is supposed to be. And those lies that I was pointing out, that's one of their weapons. They are going to be lying and lying and lying. And not just lying, they're going to have the press bolstering those lies and reiterating them and giving them the big sound. And we can't do that because we're the good guys. I know it stinks, but we still can't do it, you know? They can be nasty. They can call us racist. We can take their po policies apart and take their personalities apart. We can do all that, but we can't be, we don't have the tools they have because we're the good guys. We have to depend on the armor of God and the, and the word of truth. We just have to. I know it's really frustrating. I know these guys like Donald Trump come along and they play off our desire to hit back twice as hard. We should hit back twice as hard, but we have to do, hit back differently. We have to do it differently because we're fighting for a different thing, okay? So <clears throat> I looked at the situation and I thought, what, what is the most likely scenarios? What are the most likely scenarios? I think, I think right now, could change tomorrow. You know, Hillary Clinton could fall down and have a fit, or Bernie Sanders could come from behind. But right now, it looks like it's going to be Hillary Clinton against one of three Republican candidates, either Cruz or Rubio or Trump. I still think it's going to be Rubio, but what do I know? You know, I mean, I think, I think the thing about Rubio and Cruz and any of the other politicians, uh, other GOP pols except Trump, is they fit within the paradigm. They fit within, everybody is screaming, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal today, this is different, this election is different. And they're always saying that, and it may be, it may be true. It's certainly different in this fact that there's no incumbent, that always causes a lot more craziness, a lot more of a free-for-all. But Cruz and Rubio both fit within the paradigm. Rubio is a kind of mainstream, center-right, slightly right of center-right, but really center-right candidate. He's better, I think, a better candidate than Mitt Romney, certainly a better candidate than John McCain, but he's in that kind of uh, wheelhouse. And, and that's not because he has a lot of strength behind him, not just because there's this evil GOP establishment trying to short-circuit the base, because, you know, there is a GOP establishment. It's not evil. It's just patrician and a little bit out of touch. But Really, the GOP, the Republican Party, is a center-right party. It's a moderate conservative party. People like me, who are really further to the right, are part of the base. And the base is important, but we're not the majority. The majority of Republicans are moderate conservatives, and Rubio fits right in there. So he's really part of the paradigm. I think Jeb Bush is a dead letter. I think he's passed. His time has passed. The Bush time has passed. That patrician attitude is really out of touch. But Rubio is right in there. 
Cruz is part of, is an out, on the outside of the paradigm in that every now and again the base gets what it wants. Every now and again a guy like Cruz comes along who's smart, who's cunning, who beats the system that is meant to throw up guys like Rubio and Bush. A guy like Cruz comes along and beats that system. That's still part of the paradigm. You know, it, it changes things. It can move the party to the right. The party is moving naturally to the right. But that would still be somebody we recognize. Trump is different. Trump, in my opinion, and I, not just my opinion, it's obvious, he, this is a lifelong friend of Democrats with very left-wing points of view. I mean, not just the pro-abortion, but the high taxes, the big regulate, you know, he's anti-trade, which I know you've, you know, many people think tr that free trade takes jobs away from Americans. The data show that is just not true. Uh, Trump is a guy who is, sometimes the words that come out of his mouth are true. Sometimes they're false. It doesn't matter because he doesn't believe what he's saying and he's not going to do any of the things that he's saying, so it doesn't matter what he's saying. But his words are always keyed in to the anger, uh, justifiable anger of conservatives and the angst of working class people who feel that they've been left behind and are not being educated and not being given jobs. He's talking to those people and he's using those people. So I thought, all right. Well, what, what does that mean, you know? What does that mean for at least me? I mean, as somebody who's here, here, sitting here talking, you know, what, what am I going to do? And I thought, if it's Rubio or Cruz, or really Fiorina or anybody else who is a genu genuine conservative Republican of some sort, I'm going to support him with a full and open heart. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I don't get into this, like, this guy did this, or the Gang of Eight, or this and that. The reason is... We don't need that much from them because our whole point of view is that the government is not in charge. We are in charge. So all we need from these guys is to basically follow the rule and turn, follow the rules of the Constitution and turn the ship back around. That's all we need. There's going to be things that drive us crazy. If Rubio gets in, there'll be things that drive us crazy. If Cruz gets in, if anybody gets in, there'll be things that drive us crazy. That's not what's important. If they turn the ship around, we don't need them to make America great again. We will make America great again if they'll just leave us the hell alone. If they'll stop taking our money, if they'll stop seizing our property, if they'll stop telling us who should live in our neighborhoods and who we should like and what we should think and who's a man and who's a woman, if they'll just stop, we will make America great again. We'll make it great in our garages, we'll make it great at our typewriters, we'll make it great in our nurseries, we'll make it great everywhere we are because that's what we do when you leave us the hell alone. And that's all we need. That's all we need. So if it's one of those people, I will fight for them all the way. If it's Trump, I guess I'm just going to become a one-man rebel outpost. If it's Trump, I'm just going to be the guy who preaches in the vo a voice in the wilderness, who preaches right principles at you know at a time of darkness. Okay, that that will be my policy. I will keep to my principles and keep talking about my principles no matter what these guys do. And whether it's Hillary Clinton or Trump, to me, choosing between two dishonest people who are big government guys with no feeling for the Constitution. I'm just not going to do it. I just don't feel that I'm responsible to that. But I'll address each issue as it comes along and talk in principle. Whatever happens, whatever happens, win or lose, I'm, I'm going to do my little bit, whatever little bit I can, to fight for this country because it's, a it's not just a great country. It's the greatest country ever, and it's a privilege. It's a privilege to fight. It's a privilege. I mean, I there's nothing I like better than a Donnybrook. And it is a privilege to go in there and slug it out for what's right, whether we win or lose. 
whether we win. There's no cause for despair. There's no, there's no purpose to despair. There's only a purpose to fighting, and it ain't over. It ain't over. You know, we lost Yogi Berra last, last year, but remember, it ain't over. It's over for him, but it ain't over for us until it's over. So we're just going to keep fighting. And despair, like I said, it's cowardice. We don't need it. We should throw it overboard and fight for this country that is so great and has been so damaged by this terrible, terrible failure of a president and this terrible, terrible failure of a philosophy. We should know what we believe. We should speak for what we believe. We don't have to just attack. We should build up the constitutional freedoms that were given to us. We should build them up into the next generation in a new way. That's my beginning. That's the beginning of the year. Let the year begin. Here is the first stuff I like. I wanted to start the year with upbeat, happy stuff, so I decided this week I'm going to talk about musicals <laughs> because musicals are kind of a dead form. Every now and again, somebody makes one that's okay, but really they had their day in the 40s and 50s, so I'm just going to hit a couple of musicals you might have missed that I like. Everybody knows Singing in the Rain, so I'm not going to talk about Singing in the Rain, probably the greatest movie musical ever made. The second best movie musical ever made is called The Bandwagon. And you may not have seen this. Not everybody who, who doesn't follow this but still likes musicals. I mean, there are probably better movies that have music in them, like The Wizard of Oz. I mean, The Wizard of Oz is a classic, but I, I, you could take the music out of The Wizard of Oz, still be a great movie. The Bandwagon is a musical. It's Fred Astaire, Sid Charisse, Nanette Fabre, uh, Oscar Levant, all these people. But it's basically about this washed up, star, Fred Astaire, who decides to make a comeback, and he gets this light, fluffy musical comedy, and this pretentious director comes in and tries to turn it into a retelling of Faust. And he just, just makes the whole thing pretentious, and he puts, brings in a ballerina, Sid Charisse, he brings in a ballet dancer. Greatest music, uh, Schwartz and Dietz, two, two of the great American songwriters. Here is a scene, one of the most famous scenes, where, uh, what's, the, this is a guy, he was a Scottish, um, a Scottish, Director. This is a Vincent Minnelli musical, by the way, uh, and he's a Sc Jack Buchanan, Scottish dancer and singer, and he tries to convince, Astaire is so depressed that they're trying to ruin this, this musical by making it into Faust, Buchanan tries to convince him that anything can work on stage, so, and here's what he says. Everything that happens in life can happen in a show. You can make them laugh, you can make them cry, anything anything can go the clown with his pants falling down or the dance that's a dream of romance or the scene where the villain is mean that's entertainment the lights on the lady in tights or the bride with the guy on the side or the ball where she gives him her all That's entertainment The plot can be hot Simply teeming with sex A gay divorcee who is after her ex It could be Oedipus Rex Where a chap kills his father And causes a lot of bother I always love that line, a chap killer. It's a summation of Oedipus Rex. The chap kills his father and causes a lot of bother. It's The Bandwagon, 1953, the second best musical, movie musical ever made. Take a look at it if you like. The year begins. The battle begins. Let's do it. This is Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Come back tomorrow, and the fight will continue. <laughs>